Good evening and welcome to our online book launch event for Jonathan Geltner's debut novel, Absolute Music, recently published by Slant Books. I look forward to introducing Jonathan in a few minutes, but first, just a couple of brief orders of business. My name is Gregory Wolf and I am Slant's publisher and editor. Slant is an independent, award-winning, not-for-profit literary press, specializing in fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, drama, young adult books, theology, and philosophy, the genres that have traditionally constituted the strand of literature known as Belle Lettres. Veteran book reviewer John Wilson recently wrote, the best kept secret in American publishing today is Slant Books. Slant's list is incorrigibly eclectic in the best sense of the word. The books Slant publishes don't represent any school, any clique, any fashionable or unfashionable trend, fiction, poetry, memoir, and more. They are incorrigibly individual, even as they are rooted in tradition. Here's another message we received a little while back. Congratulations on your launch as an indie press. What you have conceived and achieved strikes a deep chord within. Your vision for slant promoting first-rate literary craft and enduring humanistic values resonates with the best of my family's publishing tradition. You should get an award for classic book design from cover art to typeface, lay out the works. These are volumes and treasures to behold and hold. Those words came from Charles Scribner III. Of course, we're hoping that you and all those you love will conspire to take Slant out of that best kept secret status as soon as possible. Now, on to tonight's business. We're thrilled to present this evening, to be present this evening at a literary debut. An occasion which, as far as I am concerned, is the equivalent for a writer of baptism, first communion, and confirmation, if not confession. So by way of introduction, Jonathan Geltner was born in eastern Massachusetts, but grew up mainly in Cincinnati, Ohio. He studied English, classics, and French at the University of Cincinnati, pursued graduate work in English at the University of Chicago, and earned an MFA in fiction from Warren Wilson College. He published a translation of Paul Claudel's Five Great Odes with Angelico Press in 2020. Absolute Music is his first novel. His present work is a quest for re-enchantment through the study of a variety of authors and places. Jonathan is an avid cyclist and student of Tai Chi, as well as an amateur philologist with a penchant for Irish, Hawaiian, Hebrew, and classical Chinese. He lives in southeastern Michigan with his wife and two sons. We'll begin uh, with Jonathan doing a reading from the book, a couple different passages, I believe, interspersed with some of his own uh, commentary and narrative. And while he is reading, I would encourage anyone to uh, ask questions by typing them directly into the chat box. Depending on the variety of factors, including time, I will pass some of these questions on to Jonathan after he's finished his reading and possibly ask one or two myself. But now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Geltner. Greetings, and thanks to all who have uh, showed up tonight. 
um, I was going to say come out this evening, but then realized we haven't gone out. <laughs> Thank you for showing up. It's wonderful to see um, familiar names and unfamiliar. Um, I uh, also want to especially thank you, Greg, and Slant Books for publishing this novel, Absolute Music. Um, it is a very literary novel, uh, to use that term in a purely descriptive sense, and um, it is downright hard to publish such things these days, um, and especially if it's a, a first novel, a debut novel. So. I feel extremely lucky, uh, privileged to, to be here reading tonight. Um, I hope you'll enjoy. Um, I, uh, I'm going to kind of launch into, I'm going to read from two movements in this novel, Absolute Music. Um, and I'll, uh, I think I'll say something after I read the first one about why I just called it a movement. Um, I'll just give you the, the minimum sort of background uh, that you would need to understand uh, the first part that I'm going to read here. Um, and then, like I say, maybe I'll, I'll fill in a little bit after this first movement and um, <clears throat> maybe we could have some questions then. Uh, and then I'll move, I'll do another another part of the book. Um, it's a first-person novel. This whole thing is narrated by a fantasist, a guy who writes fantasy or tries to write fantasy named McPhail. Uh, at least that's the only name that he uh, gives himself in the, in the text. It's a family name of his. Um, there is a plot in this literary novel, I swear, I promise. Uh, I'm not going to read from from much that uh, uh, has to do with that this evening, so as not to uh, give anything away. Um, but uh, a lot of the book, because it is a very literary type thing, um, very sort of philosophical, digressive kind of speculative um, piece of fiction, has to do with it. It, it really consists of McPhail remembering stuff from, from earlier in his life. So this first part that I want to read from is from the second suite of the novel. Uh, again, I'll, I'll explain why it has that, that terminology later on, um, fairly early on in the thing. And it has, it, it has to do with Cincinnati, which is one of the most important places in the novel. Um, and MacPhail is remembering, um, or has, well, he's remembering um, a time in his youth when he was, I guess, uh, about 19 or 20 years old. And he uh, has just told his fiance of that time, the woman who would become his first wife, Severine, that he's going to um, quit music. He's a, he's a music composition student. And um, and Severine is a musician as well. And he's just told her he's going to, he's completely changing up his life. Um, he's told her this in a neighborhood of Cincinnati called Mount Adams. Um, they've gone there. Uh, they've gotten into a bar and drunk some wine in the middle of the day underage. And um, 
they're wandering around in this neighborhood. Up at the top of that neighborhood is a beautiful Catholic church called the Immaculata. And um, they've wandered past that. It's the church where they're going to get married. And then they've wandered downhill a little bit into an area called Eden Park and made their way over to a very peculiar statue, which you're about to hear about, that's in Cincinnati. And it is by this um, statue, this little statue, it's still elevated up above the river, the Ohio River there, that McPhail, being the weirdo that he is, uh, has decided to to tell his um, fiance that he's quitting his career, basically, such as it is in his youth. So um, that's the most, most of what you need to know. Um, the only other thing I'll mention is that one of the memories that the most sort of um, cata, um, catalyst like memory in this, this gets this whole novel going is McPhail remembering uh, the death uh, at the age of 14 uh, when he was also 14 of a girl named Hannah. Um, she'll be mentioned moment to, uh, just briefly in this one movement. Um, other than that, uh, there's not much to say. He has a best friend named Gregory, and uh, he had a kind of weird vision of Cincinnati with Gregory um, at sort of the portico of the Immaculata Church when he was just a small boy. Um, but I think that's it. So this is a, a Cincinnati part of the novel. Um, and McPhail has decided to remember the story uh, occasioned by the statue next to which he told his fiance he's quitting music. This is how he tells the story. And he's going to, as you'll see, get pretty far afield um, from his initial topic. In the days when Homer's stories, already old, first took the shape we know, on the other side of the Mediterranean, another story was beginning. Numitor was king in Alba Longa, but he was deposed by Amulius, Numitor's daughter, Rhea Silvia, a priestess of the goddess Vesta, and as such vowed to celibacy, was seduced or raped by Mars, and the fruit of that illicit union were the twins Romulus and Remus. Amulius, the usurper, was perturbed by the appearance of heirs to his still-living rival's line, and he had a servant take the twins away from the city and slaughter them. It would have brought down divine wrath to do it in the city itself. But at the last moment, this servant was overcome with pity or cowardice or sheer laziness, according to Livy, and so instead of murdering the infants outright, he abandoned them in a basket on the Tiber. The river deposited them gently on the shore in the shadow of the seven hills that would one day cradle the eternal city, and they were suckled by a she-wolf. The wolf never had any name but Lupa, which means a female wolf, and was slang in antiquity for a prostitute. The Romans, like the Hebrews of the same period, and the Christians who would inherit the sensibilities of both peoples, understood their relationship to the divine as primordially involved with adultery. When Romulus and Remus outgrew the care of the wolf, they were raised to manhood by a shepherd. Thereupon, the twins became involved in a struggle to reinstate their grandfather Numitor on the throne in Abalonga. It was only in the course of that struggle that the twins learned of their ancestry, 
Upon its successful conclusion, the royal youth set out to found their own city, and they happened to choose for its location the seven hills where the wolf first discovered them. Discord ensued, however, for the men could not agree on which of the seven hills to build their city. They resorted to augury to make the decision, but the augury was ambiguous, and they fell to argument, then to outright combat in the course of which Romulus murdered his brother. Again, and passing over the baby in a basket motif, we see a parallel with the stories of the Hebrews, for in them civilization begins with Cain's murder of his brother Abel and his subsequent accursed wandering. It is Cain who founds the first cities. The sculpture of the wolf was known to have existed anciently in Rome, the one situated in Eden Park, where I told Severine that I had decided to renounce music, is a replica of one that dates to the 11th or early 12th century. She is beautiful and haunting, this lupa, neither meager nor voluptuous. Her head is turned to the side and her jaws parted slightly. She is tired, but also joyous and eager. The same expression that every new mother I have seen has worn. In the story, she is able to nurse the infants because she had recently lost cubs of her own, and I think there is sadness in this wolf's eyes, along with the surprise of finding herself a mother after all. But why should the sons of Italy, in conjunction with Mussolini himself, have gifted Cincinnati this sculpture? European settlement of southwest Ohio began in the late 1780s and soon centered on the large semicircular basin to be found at the confluence of the Ohio River and Mill Creek coming from the north and opposite Mill Creek, the Licking River coming from the south. The first name for the city was Losantiville, a portmanteau meaning city opposite the mouth of the Licking River. The L for Licking, Os meaning mouth in Latin, Ante opposite in Greek, and Ville the French for city. But a number of the first European settlers were veteran officers of the Revolutionary War and soon decided to rename the place after the Society of the Cincinnati, of which they were members. They had taken the name for their society from an archaic Roman figure almost as legendary as Romulus and Remus, one Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus. Cincinnati is the plural of his cognomen, which means curly-haired, and is thus perceptibly related in the Indo-European route to our word kink, as for example a kink in the river, for among the early Romans a C always sounded like a K, kinkinatus. The veterans put themselves under the aegis of the legendary Roman because his story is one of humility, renunciation, and careful labor upon the earth themes as central to the early Roman mythology as to Jefferson's ideal of an agrarian republic. But shadowing Cincinnati's story of humility, renunciation, and the strength of self-restraint is another tale, one of violence, scandal, fear, and failure. Lucius's son, Caiso, committed an act of insurrection, which, though it failed, involved murder, earning him a death sentence. Lucius expended the bulk of his old Etruscan wealth in buying his son's life, though Caiso still had to go into exile in neighboring Etruria. Lucius retreated to the modest remainder of his estate on the hills opposite Rome, perhaps roughly where the Vatican is today. Soon after this disgrace, however, the senators came to Cincinnatus on his farm, bearing his old senatorial toga and begging for his aid in defending the city against the invading Volsci. This was only two generations or so after the last of the Roman kings was overthrown, an event Lucius Quinctius would have remembered from his boyhood. The republican order that had replaced the monarchy was still nascent and now in danger of premature death. The senators made Lucius dictator a position of supreme and emergency authority, and in that capacity he defeated Rome's enemies. 
Rather than remain in power, as he easily could have done, once the threat had passed, Lucius Quinctius surrendered to Fasces. The rods bundled about an axe, which symbolized absolute power. He returned to his farm. This story repeated itself two decades later, and despite his by then very advanced age, Lucius again saved Rome, and a second time gave up the Fasces the moment he was able to do so. At Sawyer Point, on the river in downtown Cincinnati, and almost visible from the Immaculata atop Mount Adams, there is a large bronze statue of Cincinnatus, one hand on the plow at his side, the other arm extended, holding the Fasces, remanding power to the Senate and people of Rome. So why should Cincinnati keep, in an out-of-the-way corner of one of her hilltop parks, the sculpture of the fictional Capitoline Wolf, especially considering that it was a gift from Mussolini, whose fascism stood in starkest contrast to the values epitomized by Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus. The city where Hannah was born and died was named for a man, not for another place. But in taking its name from Lucius Quinctius, Cincinnati became associated with his city, particularly as it was asserted that Cincinnati was built like Rome on seven hills. Over time, the idea of a city of seven hills, despite its association with the beast in Revelation, took on an auspicious aura, though no Cincinnatian could tell you why it matters that a city should claim to be built on seven hills as many cities do, including Athens, Jerusalem, Moscow, and dozens of others. Just as no two Cincinnatians will give you seven identical names for the foundational hills. This is because the city was not founded on seven hills, but in the central basin between Mill Creek and the Ohio. She was, to begin with, not a city set upon a hill, but a river city, cradled by the hills into which she would later leap. It is the river that imparted to Cincinnati, as Harry Graff wrote in the 1943 WPA Guide to Cincinnati, a lustiness which still lingers. There is no understanding the person I was in that springtime and the person Severine was without understanding the place where we lived and loved each other. I knew it intuitively then and have always believed it since we are creatures of place. <clears throat> Severine and I, may always, sorry. <clears throat> Severine and I may not have been born in Cincinnati like Hannah and Gregory, but we were nonetheless an expression of the city of Seven Hills. Somehow our hometown's namesake is part of us and our story and all the mythical association he brings with him. But also the very shape of the place is involved with us or we are involved in it. The hills of Cincinnati are actually punctuated in carven tablelands. It is called dendritic terrain after the Greek word for tree. And indeed, the gouges made by water running to the Ohio make a pattern like the branching of a tree. If I had to name seven distinct cradle hills surrounding the wide and often miasmic Mill Creek Valley, where it flows into the Ohio, haven of pork packers and iron foundries, soap and bourbon makers, rail yards and interstate highway, I would say that from the west, arcing round north and back down on the east, there are Mount Echo, Price Hill, Fairmount, Fairview, Bellevue, Mount Auburn, Mount Adams. That's four mounts, two views, and a hill. Throughout the rest of the city's 52 neighborhoods and uncounted suburbs, there are at least a dozen more places that include hill or some version of mount in their name. One always has a sense of being either up or down, and even the top land is not flat. 
Of those seven cradle hills, five are crowned with large parks. The hills make a ring of colorful palisades. From the center of the city, look to any horizon, including mirroring formations in Kentucky. And you see green in summertime, or purple shadowy, or golden gleaming brown and gray, bare deciduous trees in winter. The hills are spotted with houses and girdled with streets that run at steep angles. There are also public stairways. Once there were funicular inclines, vineyards upon the cradle hills, and long cellars tunneled into them for the purpose of lagering beer. The uneven landscape of Cincinnati divides the neighborhoods and suburbs sharply from each other, giving the city a parochial and cliquish character, and the hills cut her off from the rest of the state of Ohio. Cincinnatians are not really Ohioans. They belong to the river and the hills that define their lives. A strongly felt disparity divides east and west in the city of Seven Hills, one side or the other of Mill Creek. But these halves are themselves composed of isolated pockets. It is ultimately topography that brings some Cincinnatians close and alienates others from their kindred spirits if they happen to live a hill or a valley too far. And yet the city's compartmentalized nature also makes it a palimpsest or manifold, endowing it with mystery and amplitude, as if it were somehow larger than it is. Seven bridges connect the center of the Seven Hills to Kentucky. In the early stage of the city's growth, an arm of the Miami and Erie Canal flowed through the center of Cincinnati under what is now Central Parkway. This route divides downtown from over the Rhine, and it was the canal that gave Ryan to the name of that neighborhood. The German immigrants who settled on the north side of the canal in the early and middle 19th century hailed from the Rhineland, and they were predominantly Catholic. After I moved away from the city in 2005, over the Rhine, or OTR, gentrified at a meteoric rate, by the time of my 36th birthday, OTR's blocks upon blocks of Italianate architecture and its people of every age and color mixing together would come to seem the heart of the city of Seven Hills. So much entertainment and culture had moved to OTR by then that other neighborhoods like Mount Adams that Severine had loved now felt obsolescent. But in the spring of 2001, Severine could still be in love with the idea of drinking wine in Mount Adams. And at that time, all anyone talked about in connection with OTR was the rioting that had occurred there six weeks before, when Cincinnati police officer Stephen Roach, a white man, shot and killed an unarmed 19-year-old Black man named Timothy Thomas. Okay. So that was one um, complete movement of my book. Um, I should uh, explain a couple of things now, I think. Um, and if anyone wants to butt in with anything, please do. Um, always happy to field unexpected and um strange questions <clears throat> um but about um first of all quickly about the um the the title of the book and uh the title of um the suite that i just read from um it's called the genius of renunciation the the second suite of the novel um, and of course the novel is called absolute music 
so what is going on with all that? Um, <clears throat> as I said, McPhail is or was a, a music composition student, uh, a musician, and um, absolute music is a technical term. It means um, music that has no referential verbal apparatus of any kind, um, which is quite a mouthful. Um, it, it means that there's no language attached to the music that refers to anything outside of the music. So um, titles that are more than just technical descriptions of the music um, are out. And uh, there's no there's no words, of course, in the music, no lyrics. And um, certainly there's nothing in the way of um, what, what we call program or programmatic music, um, which was this wonderful um, genre of music, uh, probably not much composed anymore. But, you know, it would be instrumental music um, like. Um, uh, gosh, I don't know, like, like, uh, Richard Strauss's Don Quixote or Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead, or, um, one of my very most favorite composers, Sibelius wrote some amazing instrumental music, purely instrumental, but it would have titles that linked it to like Finnish, uh, he was Finnish, um, Finnish mythology and history and stuff. Um, so you can't have any of that, you know, it, it, you wouldn't, you, you can't have a program that tells you what the music is about uh, as if, as if the music could actually represent something as if it could actually be representational, even though it's purely instrumental. So all that stuff's not absolute music. Absolute music is music that has no reference, no verbal reference to the world outside of the music. Um, it's maybe what some people think of, um, first of all, uh, in terms of classical music, um, and, uh, McPhail, part of the fiction of this thing is that McPhail has actually written it, or at least the first draft of it, um, in music composition notebooks, as if this language is the absolute music that he once upon a time wished to, but could not compose. Um, and he's taken as his model for it, uh, the, what it might be some of the most famous and beloved, um, absolute music or pure music uh, in the, the Western canon, the six suites for solo cello composed by J.S. Bach in the early 18th century. Uh, and Bach also wrote six suites. Um, some of them are called sonatas. Some of them are called partitas, but they're six suites for a solo violin. And actually in the next part that I'm going to read from this novel, that music gets referenced. Um, so McPhail has taken that as one of the structuring principles, I guess, of, of this writing that he's doing. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the box suites, um, the internal movements of the music, that's why I refer to this as a movement that I just read. Um, the movements do have names and it goes in, in order of, um, like prelude, allemand, courant, um, Saraband, a menuet of some kind, so like a bourre, which means drunk, or um, a gavat, uh, and then a gig at the end. I think I have that in the right order. Um, and those 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 are cool words, right? They're kind of cute. Um, they sound like they are referential and meaningful, and and they kind of are. Um, 
they were actually names for dances, little aristocratic dances that people would do. Um, my music history is too rough to, to remember if they were still actually dancing by box time. Um, my guess is not really, uh, but it would just be sort of like a technical direction. Um, you know, dance like you're drunk, I guess. I don't know, but, um, it's, it, that's all it really meant. It didn't, it didn't actually refer to anything specific in the outer world, the wider world. Um, and, uh, so those have names and, um, but the actual suites themselves in box cello suites don't have names. They just have technical descriptions, you know, the key that they're in, um, the tonal system was sort of settling in at that point. So, um, that's what absolute music is. And that's what this novel looks like. If you pick it up and, and look at it, the table of contents, you see suites and they, the suites have titles, but the movements don't, they're just numbers. So it's kind of the opposite of how box thing works. But, um, I think that's the main thing I, I kind of wanted to explain, um, what's going on here structure wise, that that's one of the structuring principles of the book. Um, Before I read any more, uh, do you guys, should we talk about it at all? I don't, I, I kind of glanced and see there's um, some questions in there. Jonathan, how, how would you like to handle that? Would you like to read them yourself and just go for it? Or do you want me to mediate any of this for you? Uh, I wonder, yeah, just to, uh, let me just take a look at um, what people have written. Uh, if you'll excuse me for a moment. Um, Huh. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Jerry Stanix. Um, how much research did you do for the novel? How much information did you pull from memory? Um, I don't know. Uh, I did a lot. <laughs> I don't know if I thought all of it. I thought of all of it as research. Um, and uh, to, to the extent that I didn't research, but tried to pull from memory stuff that I had studied sometimes many years ago. Um, God knows how accurate I got it. I, I, so one of the things about the book, um, is that, it, which you'll, you'll figure out if you read it, uh, McPhail, the narrator is an extremely learned guy and, um, Lord knows I've spent most of my life poring over books, but I, I think he's really more learned than I am. And that's actually, um, Early, I mean, I'm trying to like present him that way. And that's actually a really challenging thing to do uh, because you kind of have to um, know just enough to make it seem like the narrator knows vastly more. Um, I've certainly poked my, my nose in um, a dozen languages or more, and, and I can kind of mess around productively with like a half dozen of them. But um, yeah, the way McPhail uses language and stuff is, is um, in some instances, uh, alludes to a capacity that is probably beyond mine. So, I mean, that's not exactly an answer to Jerry's question, but it's kind of a funny thing about this book, I think, that um, that I noticed while writing it and, and rereading it, um, that uh, this narrator of mine is actually maybe um, kind of out of my league intellectually. <laughs> um, so, uh, the sources of the names, um, and why some characters don't get named, um, with gosh, uh, 
Well, so actually for some of that, um, I would just say, read the book. <laughs> McPhail, um, goes on a, a long, uh, riff. I mean, that's practically, uh, it's his favorite thing to do is to go on long riffs, um, about what the name McPhail means and where it comes from. Um, Q, uh, is his wife. I, that, that's part of the info I need to explain for the next um, part I'm going to read. So I'm glad her name comes up. Q is his present wife, his second wife, um, his, his wife at the time of the narration um, and at the time of the main storyline, which is from 2017 to 2018, um, which now feels like an insanely long time ago, like another world, uh, even though it, I start, I wrote the first sentence of this novel less than five years ago. And it, and it feels like, a completely different universe. But um, anyway, Q's name, his wife's name is is actually an acronym that she like styled herself with apparently in her youth um, when she met him. Um, and uh, McPhail at one point says that that it would be the same um, the same three letters, whether she used her maiden surname or his own. Um, Severine as a name comes from that is the feminine form of of um the the name that is soren kierkegaard's name um well the soren part soren and um yeah there's a whole huge backstory to that that i i don't even don't even want to get into but i i have weird ways of coming up with names some of them um don't get named um and uh there's various reasons for that too uh Partly it's because within the fiction, this is McPhail writing about, you know, act like real people to him. Uh, so he's, he's going to maybe withhold um, names of certain people closest to him, his parents, his children, um, his wife, considering that's her acronym um, uh, or initials. Um, maybe some others. Um, the naming is, is kind of, yeah, it's all over the place. I'll just say naming is a theme in the, in the book. It has, uh, some metaphysical, um, scope to it, uh, as, um, you, you would, I hope gather if, if you read it, um, who gets a name, what kind of names they get in the third suite at the end, there's, uh, quite a bit about the surnames of Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, um, the writer Joseph Roth, in fact, gets quoted on that subject. So, uh, yeah, names are um, a complex and weighty theme in the whole thing. Um, I did just speak about music and movements, Dunya. Um, I hope to your satisfaction. Um, but if there's any more questions in that vein, please let me know. Um, is McPhail obsessed with information throughout, like he is in this excerpt as a central aspect of his character? So what do you see as the role of information in the novel's literary effect? Um, yeah, fantastic question. Um, I think it's on the jacket copy, but at, at some point late in the novel, uh, McPhail refers to his consciousness as obsolete. And um, that means a lot of things, uh, I hope. But one of the things it means is that as I was saying earlier, he's this hyper learned guy and, um, he has grave doubts about the value and on ongoing legitimacy of, of that learning or, or relevance, I guess you could say he's definitely obsessed with information. Um, I myself personally have 
uh, I'm kind of ambivalent about that in terms of literary effect. Um, I have, especially as I've been teaching nonfiction in recent semesters, um, I have become very fascinated by knowledge in, in literature. Um, and this novel it does to some extent push the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction, not in the sense of its veracity, but in its essayistic quality, its digressive informational quality. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that to, to the various different ways that writing, um, particularly for what I tend to teach and, and what I'm interested in working on now, nature writing or anything uh, involving the environment, um, the degree to which that depends upon and the different ways in which it deploys information, knowledge, um, observational acumen. Um, so it's possible that McPhail, the, the narrator, is, is, was partly... Um, an effort on my part to uh, explore both the benefits and pitfalls of having a lot of information at your disposal, trying to rely on that um, to a great extent, and um, and where it where it doesn't where it doesn't get you, um, because as great as knowledge of many kinds um, can be, uh, it can also be um, a bit of a lure. It can be a bit of a distraction from from what is essential or what's really going on. Um, and it can be a source of hubris. You can, you can think that you understand much more than you really do. So I, I would certainly say that that's a, a huge issue for the narrator of this, this novel. Um, was I trying to make McPhail likable? Um, oh, sorry. I just skipped over Hank's question. Um, I was trying to make him so okay. I have a I have a quote that I'm actually it's not even a quote. I'm gonna it's a mangled paraphrase, but um this wonderful 20th century um expositor of Zen and, and Eastern East Asian um thought and culture, uh, a man who lived most of his life there, R. H. Blythe, um uh much of whose work Angelico uh, has just brought back into print. Um he has this great line in uh his still out of print um five volumes Zen and Zen classics where he says basically good and evil have to be in perfect balance and good has to just barely win. Um I, like I say I'm mangling that but um uh, Blythe is very eloquent. Um but that is kind of my attitude towards the uh, sympathetic or not quality of McPhail. I, I wanted to make him the likable and unlikable aspects of him in perfect balance with just the, the likable or sympathetic qualities, just barely winning in the end. Um, of course, I won't necessarily have done that for every reader, but, but that was sort of what I was, what I was going for. Um, He's not, I, I didn't think of him in terms of like hero and anti-hero. That, that sounds too extreme to me. He's, he's more of a, a real person than that. Um, wonderful uh, historical context. Um, why does his, what, oh, sorry, what does history do to reinforce a fictional universe? Does it have aesthetic significance? Um, that's the question I skipped. Uh, History. 
this actually goes this I actually almost I, if I had the time I would want to tie this to the uh, Christina's question about enchantment because and and um and Tolkien um because uh history the sense of deep history in places is um of enormous interest to me personally um and I think that it's an extremely important aspect of a variety of different literary genres um or just a lot of different literary works um definitely in Tolkien uh to again look forward to Christina's question there um so much of the feeling of Tolkien's world um at any point in it even the uh now earlier stages of it which are being turned into a tv show by Amazon, I think. I know nothing about that kind of stuff. But anyway, any point in Tolkien's world is full of like deep history. There's always this sense that whatever is happening at that time in the story, there's a ton of other stuff that happened before that's extremely important. Um, that's fantasy. Uh, although Tolkien always tied his fantasy to the to the real earth, um, which is extremely important. But um I think that kind of sense of the depth of history uh which is a sense that kind of goes beyond good and evil i mean it includes them both but goes beyond is um yeah i just think it's important to a great deal of writing it's certainly not confined to fantasy although it it ought to be emphasized actually as as particularly important to fantasy um if you read the novel and and you get to know this mcphail guy this fantasist dude uh you'll eventually get to learn about the fantasy that he's trying to write and you'll learn that it's alternative history of a kind um so that might actually um speak more to the question about history than than i can at the moment but um it is almost like its own um aesthetic it's its own braga in sanskrit like it's it's got like the sense of history being there is is its own um presence and and it can be good it can be bad it's i mean it's virtually always in every particular mixed um the passage i just read starts out with this like legendary mythical history type thing romulus and remus and with some reference to cain and abel and there's a lot of violence and eventually you get through the revolutionary war and colonial history which is more what we think of as like real history and then ends with the the 2001 uh violence in um over the rhine which has to do with you know the the racial history of the united states so um the passage i just read tries to bring in several different kinds of history i guess you could say um um yeah so the, the clock is is ticking on. So I think uh, if I can read another passage, I will. Um, and then another round of, of, uh, of the question. Like I said, the third suite, which I'll now read from, um, page 104, for those of you following along at home with your own copies. Uh, uh, the fifth movement of it, the, the third suite's called Rosenzweig in Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh's another really important place in this novel. Um, you know, 
motivations for writing a book are impossible to really um, state all the way. But two of them for me are, first of all, to create a certain kind of prose. I think Eugene Vodolaskin, the amazing Ukrainian Russian writer, um, one of the, one of our, well, our, one of the best uh, novelists that I've read, um, who's, who's currently alive, has this line somewhere about someone asked him the common question for writers, like, where, where do your ideas come from? And he, and he basically says, nowhere, I don't have any. I get into the language of a narrator and then I get going with that. And that's that's my novel. Um, and I understand that completely because you, you get into um, a particular feeling for the language and, and a rhythm with the language. Um, and, you, and, and you're writing almost just so you can work with the English language, in my case, um, in that way. Uh, it's a kind of way of thinking about writing that we usually hear from poets about, but I cut my teeth on poetry and I think poetry is, I think all prose writers should. And um, that's often how I think of poetry. I don't even care what I'm writing. <laughs> I just want to be producing sentences of a particular kind. Um, I think I've got Annie Dillard on my side for that too. But anyway, that's one motivation. But the other, another big one for a novel like this is place. And so I, there was certain places that I wanted to represent, to do justice somehow or honor somehow in writing, in fiction. Um, but of course, in saying that, I'm pointing towards where fiction and reality coincide because the places are real. The, I mean, everything else about the book is fictionalized to at least some degree and many uh, parts of it to a very high degree, but the places and the weather even are very real. Um, they're accurate in that sense. I and mean, this kind of points back to um, Luke's question about, I think it was Luke about information, um, accuracy and knowledge is, is related to that. And the places are depicted, I hope, um, not just realistically, but accurately. Um, so Pittsburgh was one of the ones that I wanted to do that way. Um, the only thing I'll tell you about this last part that I'll read from is that um, this is the, like, this is, well, there's a character I mentioned, an old friend of the narrator, Joel Stein, um, who becomes important later on in the novel. Um, I've already told you Q is his, his wife at the time of his writing. Um, he had lost a job earlier in the novel. He go, he loses a job through his own ridiculousness um, at a kind of Catholic prep school type thing. And also the novel opens with... Um, McPhail's uh, investigation of the writer Michael Enda, a German writer um, famous for writing the novel, famous in our language, um, that we know as The Neverending Story, which you're going to hear the name of that in here, Dune Endlich Geschichte. Um, McPhail reads the actual book in the earlier part of this novel, um, the actual book, The Neverending Story, and, uh, which is extremely different from the movie. So even if you never touch my novel and never think about this again, you should, if you have any interest in the never ending story, the movie that probably we've all seen, um, you should go out and somehow get your hands on a copy of, of the actual novel um, that that's based off of, because it's, it'll blow your mind how utterly unlike the film it is. Um, extremely hard to get a hold of. At least it was back when I was writing this thing. Maybe it's changed now. Um, anyway, we're going back in time one year, not even, uh, to um, the year 2000 in this passage. 
fifth movement from the third suite. There is a long hallway in a house. The walls of the house are brick outside and in, and the hallway is dark. Yes, very dark, because the bricks are not the cream of Milwaukee brick or the crimson of Cincinnati brick or even the ruddy brick of Chicago. The house is in Pittsburgh, and the bricks are dark as dried blood. The ceiling is low, and the walls are close in the part of the hallway where I have just entered it, toward the back of the house, where the hallway terminates or originates at the entrance to the master bedroom, and at a slightly higher level, accessed by three stairs leading to a very short passage, two other bedrooms, and a bathroom. I have come out of one of these bedrooms. In about the middle of its course, the hallway down which I walk becomes wider and the ceiling higher, no longer perpetually darkened, but illuminated on this day by a low gray sky that refracts a chilly light through the house's rectangular clear story windows. At this juncture in the hallway where one passes from dark to light or from light to dark, there is a vestibule off to one side, which gives onto a bathroom and a fourth bedroom. The house belongs to my father's parents. The bedroom just mentioned was used for some time by my father's paternal grandfather, Meyer, until he died in 1981, a month before I was born, and then by my father's maternal grandmother, Rokel, until she died in 1991. In fact, she died on Christmas night, having lived just long enough to see the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the last events she witnessed in this life, on a TV in that bedroom, was Mikhail Gorbachev's resignation and the lowering of the Soviet flag from the Kremlin for the last time. According to my father, she then spoke something in Yiddish he couldn't quite understand and died. But the time I'm writing about is the noon hour of Thanksgiving in the year 2000, and the fourth bedroom is occupied by Severine. I'm walking down the hallway, having put aside my studies. A textbook on Baroque music lies open, and next to it a composition notebook, the same kind in which I first drafted these suites, on which I had been sketching music for keyboard that I would not myself be able to play very well. What is evident to me now is that the music I was in the midst of setting down could easily have been made into a duet for violin and cello. But at the time of which I'm writing, my mind was capable only of abstraction, and I could not imagine real players making real music from the notes that I wrote down. And so I was unable to compose music for Severine and me to play together, nor indeed for anyone to play. At the moment I'm writing of, I'm driven by hunger to go to the kitchen where my father's sister and my mother are preparing the large meal. I've decided to purloin several small pastries commonly available in Pittsburgh and known as thumbprints for the indentation made by the thumb in the small round dough filled with frosting. The hallway is carpeted, so I make no noise as I go, but the hallway is not silent. Shortly after I begin walking down the hallway, my progress is arrested by the sight of my grandparents in the vestibule adjoining Severine's room. They are very still, hunched and tilting forward so that my grandfather Isaac can press his right ear and my grandmother Miriam her left ear to the door behind which Severine is playing her violin. I am able to make out that Severine is playing the Saraband from Bach's first partita for solo violin. My grandparents are 85 years old at this time and hard of hearing, yet it seems to me that this is not the only reason they've drawn so clo as close as they can get to Severine's music without disturbing her. She's in her senior year of high school, preparing, despite her stated intention to remain by me in Cincinnati, for auditions at several conservatories, and therefore nervous. She will gain admittance anywhere she applies, but neither her teacher nor I can convince her of this, and she's always anxious and insists on practicing even throughout most of Thanksgiving Day. My grandparents have never before heard Severine play, 
They met her for the first time the previous night when we arrived from Cincinnati. I say nothing as I walk past them. As I go by, a remarkable event occurs in my mind. It is as if, hearing her music, I am able for one or two seconds to see Severine. Not only do I see her through the door and the dark brick wall, as it were, but at the same time, or right afterwards, I see her from outside the house. One wall of the bedroom where Severine is staying communicates with a small greenhouse, which can also be entered from the yard. The greenhouse contains various cultivars of geranium, which my grandmother has kept there since her mother, Rokel, spent her final years in the bedroom that Severine is now using. As I am passing my grandparents listening to Severine, as I move from the dark and narrow part of the hallway into the broad and luminous part, I seem to see Severine from outside the house, as though I were looking into the greenhouse full of red geraniums. I see Severine wearing a carnelian sweater and playing her fox red violin. This warm image has the feel of reality or truth, something that I see with my bodily eyes. It has that feeling when it appears to me in the hallway of my grandparents' house, as I recall it in a basement in Michigan in the spring of 2018, and even now as I write. At the time when I'm walking down the hallway of my grandparents' house in Pittsburgh to fetch some thumbprints on Thanksgiving in the year 2000, I have never seen Severine practicing music in a geranium room as we called it, either from outside the house or from within. Of the uncounted memories, the horde of images of the past that seem to make up the bedrock of my mind, only this one seems to consist of both real and unreal elements. Or to put it another way, the image is composed of two perspectives, perhaps something like contrapuntal music. A perspective implies one who perceives. So these two perspectives, if they are both mine, must be mutually exclusive, for I cannot be in two places at once. One of these perspectives was real, the perspective from where I actually stood. The other is merely realistic in the sense that if I had walked outside to see Severin playing the Saraban from the first partita that Bach wrote for solo violin, what I would have seen would have accorded with the image that presented itself to my mind. But surely this is not taking the matter far enough. In fact, both images, both perspectives were purely potential, or you could say fantasy. I did not, in fact, see Severine at all. If the door had been open and my grandparents not in the way, or if I had x-ray vision and could look through a brick wall, then the image of Severine as seen from the hallway would also have been realistic. I am now in the situation of called, calling two totally fantastical or potential scenarios realistic. What kind of sense can this make? I've come to see this compound image, this two-part fantasy, as a glimpse of the unreality that exists at the heart of reality, the world behind the world. And it is important that one part of the image was the perspective that would have been mine in the world of actuality had not the wall of my grandparents intervened. I had come to think that fantastical images of this kind rooted in and departing from a real position, composed the bedrock of my mind. If Joel were to read this piece of writing, he might invoke the categories of actuality and potentiality. He would describe this pair as one of the polarities of being. Everything that can be said to exist falls under one of these categories, potentiality or actuality. Potentiality is not non-being, since non-being is not a category. Fiction, Joel would likely say, enjoys the kind of being called potentiality. And he would add that traditionally potentiality has been understood as the inferior of the two kinds of being. 
Perhaps he would add that on Thanksgiving Day in Pittsburgh in the year 2000, I beheld a vision of Severine transfigured into the fiction, indeed a doubled vision. Nor could it have been otherwise. The world of actuality is the world of the singular. The world of potentiality is the world of the many, the infinitely receding horizon. When I wrote the phrase bedrock of my mind, I made use of a metaphor so common as almost to have become what is known as a dead metaphor. However, I used this particular expression in a personal, or you could say, living way. For a long time, I've thought of my mind as a landscape. Contrary to the headmaster's complaint, and no matter where I really am in the wide world, some part of me stands in a very certain place, a place of four seasons where hardwood trees flourish upon limestone and clay in a terrain described by the incontrovertible logic of water running in ever greater courses to one almighty river. Since I was a child, I have wondered that the waters of this place, which is the place of my mind as well as the place where I was raised in the wide world, can flow only ever with one tendency, whereas a human person has the potential to go against the intention of the waters. As a child, I wondered only at the flow of waters in the wide world. But in the springtime of 2018, sitting in a basement in Michigan and surrounded by large-scale topographical maps of the terrain in the wide world where I was raised, I wondered at the mind's capacity to go against the tendency of its own waters. The bedrock of the middle and upper parts of the Ohio Valley consists in many places of limestone or other rock that contain many fossils. As a boy, I spent a lot of time wandering our local creeks with Gregory and examining the fossils exposed there in the beds. We collected the more elaborate and arcane specimens that caught our eye, if we could carry away the rocks that housed them. Sometimes we would chip away at a piece of limestone rubble that was too large for us to carry so that we could take the part containing the fossil home. And sometimes this effort ended in our destroying the fossil. I would notice when we visited my father's parents in Pittsburgh that many strata of such rock visible in the cutaways made by the interstate. I came to think of the ground I habitually stood and walked and ran upon as containing innumerable images, frozen memories in the mind of the earth of her ancient days. This conception of the earth as a bedrock of memory persisted and grew until now it figured my own mind. When I read in Dune Endliche Geschichte of Bastian unearthing the frail and glassy image that would allow him to return to the world of what was for him actuality, as Joel Stein would explain it, the world of Bastian's father and his dead mother. I was unnerved in the way that Bastian was unnerved, perhaps horrified, while reading a book that seemed to have been written about him. When I think of how on a certain cold and gray day in Pittsburgh, at the turn of the century, I saw Severine practicing, and at the same time, I did not see her. And when I think of how writers of various kinds have struggled to understand and say something about what is not, or what is not there, or what is no longer, I also think of a poem by Friedrich Hölderlin that I read closely on the occasion of my last visit to Pittsburgh before I remembered Hannah under the locusts and began composing these suites. In November of 2015, almost exactly 15 years after Severine played Bach's first partido for solo violin in my grandparents' house, my grandparents leaned into the door to listen and closed their eyes and trembled with great age and also with a feeling that I cannot name and perhaps do not know.
The occasion of this last trip to Pittsburgh was the wedding of one of Q's friends from college. I had not at that time been to the city in over 10 years. Q had suffered her first miscarriage six months previously. To cope with this lingering sorrow, I had decided to translate some poetry, and Hilderlin was my choice. During the time Q drove on the way to Pittsburgh from Chicago, I read Hölderlin's poem Heidelberg aloud. Q understands spoken German much better than spoken French. I had been struggling to translate this poem to my satisfaction. I explained the problem to Q, and she guessed that while I grasped the emotion that the, emo that the poet had embodied in the poem and recognized it as one that I too had felt, the emotion had become dead to me, she said a sort of fossilized artifact. The difficulty persisted until the day after the wedding when we were at our leisure to roam Pittsburgh for a time before heading back to Chicago. I had decided to show Q a few of the sites that had once been dear and familiar to me. For breakfast, I took Q to a cafe called Beehive on Carson Street, the main drag in a neighborhood called the Southside Flats. This was one of two cafes in Pittsburgh where between the mid-1990s and 2004, I habitually loitered and drank coffee and smoked and talked with my friend Joel Stein, the other being Ritter's on Bomb Boulevard, already mentioned. Q and I had had a wet and unusually warm journey to Pittsburgh, but the murk blew away during the wedding and was replaced by cooler dry air and stark sunlight that pierced the city down to the last turning oak leaf and blown detritus. When we'd finished breakfast in one of the cozy alcoves girded by bay windows and protruding into Carson Street from the beehive, the very table where Severine had once told Joel Stein, you'll never be a writer. You like the idea of writing more than writing. I walked us out over the nearby 10th Street Bridge. On the other side, the right bank of the Monongahela, Duquesne University sits up on the hill, but I just wanted the perspective from the middle of the bridge, one of the most glorious superfluvial views in the city. And there in the crystalline day, poised over the water that would reach the city of seven hills after flowing 450 curving miles, I understood Hölderlin's poem as another instance of the kind of beguiling fantasy I had had in my grandparents' home on Thanksgiving Day in 2000. Or for that matter, the vertiginous fantasy of Cincinnati that I saw from the steps below the Immaculata with Gregory on Good Friday in 1989. In particular, I understood the third verse of the German poem, for I could now see why the poet had chosen the word Sheen, past tense of Scheinen, that the pathos of the poem, which had previously been dead to me, was ensconced in this one common word. The poet is speaking in the third stanza of a time he walked over a bridge in Heidelberg, which city he has called Ländlichschönste, of all the cities known to him, fullest with a country beauty, as I would go on to translate it. In the third stanza, the poet says he was transfixed on the bridge as if by gods. Hölderlin is always talking about the gods. They are for him the sense of the realness of reality, guarantors of the depths and richness of being, which is something from which he most often feels himself exiled. This is a difficult idea, but even more difficult for me was the second part of the third stanza. Und rein in die Berge, mir die reizende Ferne schien. What makes the sense so hard to grasp, I realized standing on the 10th Street Bridge, is that shining means both to shine and to appear or to seem. The word is in fact very like the Greek root of fantasy with its paradoxical double sense of radiance and illusion. What the poet says in these lines could be described as a fusion of imminence and transcendence. Something from afar comes innermost to the poet, 
and he in turn is carried without leaving the spot beyond his ken. Right here to me, so it seemed, into the hills the distance shone. We were looking downstream. The spires of downtown loomed ahead and to our right. To our left, the golden dome of St. John the Baptist Ukrainian Catholic Church glared from the level of Carson Street, the south side slopes rising behind it. I picked out for cue from the palimpsest of spans and pylons, the Liberty Bridge, the Panhandle Bridge, the Smithfield Street Bridge, and farthest among those we could see, the Fort Pitt Bridge. I explained what I had realized to Q, and she said, I don't think we ever get free of it. That double fantasy. Okay. Quite enough, I think, right? <laughs> it's a lot of McPhail. That, that was kind of the, uh, well, I don't know, maybe one of the philosophical hearts of the novel. And um, I, uh, as some of you may know, um, I'm a little bit obsessed or I was when I was writing this novel, with um, the contemporary uh, but now elderly Australian novelist, Gerald Murnane, um, who, for my money, is, um, is maybe the most metaphysically sophisticated novelist out there, but uh, he would never describe himself in that way. And um, that particular movement of the third suite um, which is the only suite that has an actual philosopher in its title, I guess, um, is maybe kind of philosophical, metaphysical heart of the book or a key to it. And it's definitely an imitation of, of some of Murnane's writing, um, a slight imitation. It's not a, not a slavish imitation, but, um, um, I don't know if, um, we have time for any more questions or if anyone wants to throw in anything else, I realize I'm actually now up past nine minutes past my bedtime. <laughs> um, I sleep, I usually sleep like an hour after my kids are asleep. So, um, my cogency may be diminishing rapidly, but, um, Jonathan, we've got one, one final question from Luke, um, that is down there at the bottom. Do you want to take oh, yeah. a quick look at that? Uh, McPhail uses the term fantasy, but based on this passion, I wonder if the term imagination might have been it. Do I distinguish between the two? A matter of degree. Um, oh, man. For the answer to that, I refer you to the collected works of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, <laughs> I, he uses fantasy because... Um, Uh, it's in Dante, uh, again, so is imagination or versions of that. Um, it, it's a ancient, um, it has, it has a fascinating pedigree, I guess, or history. Uh, it starts out its life as, um, as an almost entirely negative thing, a pejorative thing, um, a hallucination brought on by the devil, basically. And then, um, at least to my knowledge, it, and McPhail talks about this, it gets transformed, transmogrified by Dante. Um, and now it has become a twofold term. Um, and someone else asked earlier if I would talk about this. Uh, I can't really at sufficient length or coherently enough right now, but um, 
I mean, there, there's good fantasy and bad fantasy now. And um, that complexity, that ambivalence to me makes fantasy a more interesting term than imagination, which is kind of more univocal in my understanding. It's just kind of always um, good, but, but in a somewhat, I feel like now um, worn down way, fantasy still has some mystique to it. Um, I think because it's got that bivalence um, it, yeah, it's a long history and the etymology of it uh, as a McPhail kind of um, goes into there. And what I just read is also kind of more interesting to me than imagination. Imagination is a fascinating word too, though. And especially in the Christian, um, well, actually Jewish too, because uh, this is translating the old Testament, but the idea of imago Dei, the image of God um, was right there in the, the very beginning of the, the Hebrew Bible. Um I mean, that's that's a crucial word. Um, although, really, we should get into some Hebrew stuff to talk about that. But um, yeah, I just I get I get a lot of mileage out of fantasy. It, it's interesting how both imagination and fantasy furnish um, descriptors for literary categories, but imagination furnishes the much larger category. We we, we refer to imaginative literature um, to distinguish it from, you know. Uh, more informational to go back to your early question, Luke, uh, informational writing um, that in which the language itself is not so important. Um, we're just trying to get some, some knowledge, some information. Um, so we talk about imaginative literature and it's kind of a synonym for creative writing. Um, so yeah, I teach creative writing. I make my students read imaginative literature in order as part of that. Um, Whereas fantasy now, um, really quite recently, in larger historical terms, also is a literary genre, but it's much more specific than this huge sweeping thing imaginative literature. It it, um, it goes back to another question someone asked Christina, I think, um, about Tolkien and, and fantasy and enchantment. Um, it now refers to a kind of literature that um, actually the definition of it is quite contentious and, and people have different ideas. Mine are very geographical, but um, yeah, it's just interesting that both those terms have, have to do with, with how we categorize and talk about literature. Um, yeah. Phantasm. That's a good one to bring into you. Uh, something otherworldly, supernatural, metaphysical about fantasy. Yeah, it's got that. It's got an aura to it. It can even be creepy. Uh, it can be and it can be tragic and, and destructive too. You know, to get lost in your fantasies, to be deluded, basically. And imagination just does. There's not like a version of that word that has that same gravity, uh, same interest. What do I read to my children? Well, we're trying to read Narnia um, for the first time now. The Narnia books were in Prince Caspian. Um, of course, we all maybe disagree about what order to read the Narnia books in. But my older son is is um, reasonably interested, you know, pretty well able to follow along with the Narnia books for the first time. So that's kind of cool for me. Um, I was much older than him, actually, when I first read um, Narnia uh, so any of them. So, um, and I have, um, I actually just took out from the library, a book I haven't even read yet, but I'm really eager to by a Swedish author. I've never read anything by her and I'm going to butcher her name, but it's Selma Lagerlof or something like that. Um, log logger love. I, for all I know how to say that, um, it's L A G E R L O with an umlaut F. Um, and uh, she wrote something called like the Christ legends, but also 
um, she has these stories of a kid named Niels uh, that look really cool to me. They're kind of Narnia-like. Uh, the Scandinavians write amazing children's stuff. There's also uh, Tova Janssen um, with the Moomin Trolls. Um, and I just bought a wonderful illustrated Hobbit that I hope to read to the older son at least pretty soon. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, as I say, as my uh, wife is commenting there, um, the Narnia does seem to be making an impression already. And even though our three-year-old doesn't seem like he's ever paying attention to the stories, he'll come out with some reference to Narnia. Like we were in the backyard of the woods the other day, and he's talked about a lamppost in the woods. And I was like, oh, so you were listening to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> Didn't think you picked up on that. Um, yeah, I hope to start them out with fantasy early. Uh, I, I first read or actually listened to, um, the Hobbit when I was, um, about seven years old on this amazing 1979 radio drama production of it that I have, I have the, the cassettes I listened to as a kid somewhere in my house, um, so it's like a radio drama with actual different actors, you know, and some sound effects. Um, it's insanely good. Uh, and, and it is most of the book, although there are some passages that were not recorded, um, including one that refers to fairyland, uh, which I discovered on my last rereading of the Hobbit. Um, but, uh, that was, that was like kind of the beginning of my life. Um, as a, a literary person. And so hopefully within the next year or two, we'll, you will maybe get to that level for my kids. Yeah. Everyone's Jonathan, going to bed. So I should too. Jonathan, thank you so much. Congratulations again on the publication of the book. I've put links in the chat for going to the page on the slants website where you can click on multiple options uh, for where you want to get the book from the, huge giants that we tend to love and hate at the same time to more indie options. Hopefully you'll, you'll find one that suits you. Absolute music is available in cloth bound paperback and ebook editions. Now a few final notes. First, we hope you keep an eye out for announcements of our next online book launch event, which will take place in early September when we feature the hybrid volume of poems and memoir by Robert Cording in The Unwalled City. In The Unwalled City takes its title from Epicurus, who wrote, Against other things it is possible to obtain security, but when it comes to death, we human beings all live in an unwalled city. This affecting book, which weaves prose memoir with poetry, explores that feeling of being open to attack, in this case the pain of grief after Robert Cording's 31-year-old son Daniel died. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, here is a grief observed, encompassing not only the big questions but also the impact of grief on daily life. For a poet like Cording, one form that grief takes is that of speaking to his son. In Afterlife, Cording has a vision of his son replying, Let the emptiness remain empty. Stop writing down everything you think I'm telling you. This is your afterlife, not mine. At the heart of In the Unwalled City is a series of questions 
How does loss change a person? How does one chart a new life that both acknowledges a son's death and still finds a way back to delight? How does one now live fully in an unwalled city? To keep up with news about new and forthcoming titles from Slant, please visit our website and sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, Slantwise. And don't forget the twice-weekly posts at our blog, Close Reading. Tonight's event has been recorded and will be available on the book's webpage and on Slant's YouTube channel. It will also be available as part of our new podcast, which is, you guessed it, Slantcast. Please note that episodes of Slantcast will include our online book launch events, but will also feature exclusive audio-only content on a variety of literary topics. By early September, it will be possible to subscribe to Slantcast via all the major podcast outlets. Finally, I'd ask you to bear in mind that Slant is a nonprofit press. Your tax-deductible donations make possible the kind of intensive editing and exquisite production values that uphold the highest literary standards and ensure that quality books that might not otherwise be available or accessible are given the treatment they deserve. To support our work, just go to slantbooks.org and click on Donate. And everybody, remember to tell the truth, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again, and see you next time.